Hopkins. So I wanted to thank you for allowing us to go. Moises, thank you for preaching, for covering the pulpit. I think you did a fantastic job. Um, I'm so spoiled. I've got Dan and now I've got Moises to cover the pulpit if I have to, you know, go do something. And some folks don't have anybody in their church to back them up. So, you know, thank the Lord for that. Um, so before we uh, start in on, on 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, let me open us in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our Lord and our God, uh, thank you so much for drawing people into community. Uh, Lord, I saw that when we were in Illinois, and I see it here on a regular basis, Lord, that what happens here amongst these people is a supernatural community. It's not a normal, natural kind of thing where uh, like minds and like persuasions and like backgrounds draw together. Lord, this is a group of people who have been supernaturally been called into your presence to come together and to worship you. And so thank you that we get to be part of that. Lord, thank you that we get to watch what you do throughout the world in these little, uh, these little groups called churches. And uh, thank you for, as uh, we read this morning, your steadfast faithfulness to the promises that you've made to us. And Lord, I pray that we would be trusting more in those promises, more in your steadfast, steadfastness and less in ourselves. Um, to be reminded that it is about you. Um, this is all about you, Jesus. And, but Lord, we have some, uh, some friends who are not able to be with us. Uh, we want to pray for their help. Lord, I ask you to be with them. Uh, though we're connected in spirit, they're not here with us physically. Father, I pray for uh, Joshua Collins. And uh, Lord, the fact that he, he's got an infection and an already bad leg and Lord, would you bring healing and help? I pray that uh, if he's uh, over at the hospital now, Lord, that the doctors would have a, a clear understanding of what uh, would help our brother. And Lord, would you restore his health soon? Um, help uh, help the, the doctors figure out how to treat him the best possible way. And Lord, we pray again for Claudia Ruiz and her recovery from surgery. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the love that the church has showered the uh, Ruiz family with in uh, providing and caring for them. And Lord, I just, I'm confident that many of us have been praying for Claudia's recovery. So heal her and get her back on her feet, we pray. Uh, have mercy on them. Lord, we also wanna pray for uh, Joe and Joanna and Sydney and uh, them looking for a place to stay. Lord, would you lead them to some place that they can stay and that um, their, their dreams, their aspirations for ministry from that place would be uh, begin to find fruit. Lord, that they would find roots to sink down and and uh, get established and then begin to minister as you've called them to. So uh, Lord, we, we believe that you will provide for them and we're just looking for that answer. So be with them in, in the meantime, we pray. And Lord, as we turn now to your word, um, Holy Spirit, we, uh, these things are spiritually appraised. They're spiritually understood. Um, we can read the words and understand them as literature, but to have them really affect us, to sink down into our hearts and our minds, to renew our minds, to conform us to the image of Christ, Lord, that's your work. And so, Lord, we're, we're inviting you, please come and be with us now as we turn to this passage. Um, do your work in us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So um, it's been a couple of weeks, so let me kind of remind you where we're at, right? We're going through 1 Corinthians. When we got to chapter 8, that was clearly a gear shift. And what uh, Paul started with in chapter 8 was, now concerning food sacrifice to idols. So obviously he's, you know, turned on his turn signal, he's changed lanes, he is, he is in a new topic now. And what we saw in chapter 8 was Paul began to talk not just about meat sacrificed to idols, that's, that's a big question, but that wasn't really the issue. That was just kind of the, the topic that came up, that was the thing that kind of made it that they wanted to, to, to discuss it. What was beneath that 
was this idea of rights. We Christians, we have rights. And, and do we have a right to eat this food? Do we have a right to behave in certain ways? Those kinds of things. And that was really important. But even that wasn't the base issue. Because where Paul finally resolved that question at the end of chapter 8 was, you may have this right, but what's more important is love. Will you care for, will you love your brother or sister in Christ? And maybe even set that right aside. That was the bigger issue. That's the most important thing. So it starts with meat sacrifice to idols. That topic is going to continue on through uh, chapter 10 and, and probably into chapter 11 a little bit. But this idea of rights, I think it's going to continue on. And then that, that topic of love, I can't help but think that's where chapter 13 comes in. That most famous chapter. If I have, if I give my body to the flames and I don't have love, it was a waste of time. So it, it just reminds us that love is what's paramount here. Where he goes to in chapter 9, though, is he's going to shift and he's going to bring the attention to himself. He's going to say, let me, let me be an example to you of this. Let me show you what this looks like. And so it, it's, it's where he comes to in this chapter. The organization of this is a little clunky. When, when Rich read it, did you hear how many rhetorical questions there were? One after another after another. So what Paul's doing in his writing is he's asking these questions and he's assuming that the Corinthians will answer in the affirmative or the negative, and by weaving them together, they'll get the point. That's really nice writing. It can be difficult to preach. So what I want to do this morning is we'll go through this and we'll talk about these topics, but at the end, I want to step back and kind of draw them together and say, what do we get from all of these rhetorical questions? What is the actual point that Paul is making here? And, and so let's, let's just dig in. Verse 1, he says, am I not free? That's where he starts, is with his own personal freedom. And I think to understand that one little phrase, you have to turn back to the end of chapter 8. Uh, this is when he's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols and the weaker brother and how you might offend or, or, um, or make, cause them to sin. So verse 12, he says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Am I not free? That's his, his thought. I have the freedom to eat, but if it will cause my brother to stumble, I will never touch, I will become a vegetarian if that's what it takes. So that, that's the attitude that he comes into this with. That's where it starts. Now, the next couple of questions he asks, we're going to just kind of lightly touch them. Next week, we'll dig more into it. But, but his next question is, am I not an apostle? And, of course, he's expecting the, the Corinthians to agree. Yes, Paul, you are an apostle. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? In other words, did I not plant this church in Corinth? Didn't I come here and preach the gospel to you? Didn't I spend time with you teaching and admonishing you? Are you not my workmanship? Are you not the fruit of what I've been doing? So then in verse 2, he says, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So what he's saying there is he's defending his rights as an apostle. Now, next week, we'll dig in and we'll say, what is an apostle? Because I, I think we assume a lot, but I think we need to answer some questions. And, and some of the questions will bubble up here in a few minutes. Um, so let's just let those verses kind of sit. What he's saying is he's got rights as an apostle, and this is how he's going to handle them. So he's free to do that. So let's talk about his rights now. Verses 4 through 6. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? 
again, this is in light of food sacrifice to idols. So he's kind of touching on that, but that's not his main topic. That's not what the issue is. The issue is, do I not have rights? Is it not right for me be, to be able to do these things? Verse five, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? And then verse six really goes with it. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no, have no right to refrain from working for a living? That's gonna be his major topic for the rest of this is not so much meat sacrifice to idols or that kind of thing. It is, um, does he have a right to an income or does he have to work? That, that's his major topic. So he says, don't we have a right to bring along a believing wife as do the other apostles? So there are more than just Paul as apostles. There are other apostles and the brothers of the Lord. So Jesus' brothers, when he died, they didn't believe. They thought he was nuts. They, they were really concerned about their brother, their older brother. What's wrong with this guy? But apparently after Jesus died and when he rose again, he appeared to James, his brother. And that changed James because James then became a pillar in the church and he wrote an epistle. And so James is now a new person. The idea is also that Jude, his real name is Judas, uh, was a brother of the Lord because he identifies himself in the book of Jude as James' brother. So he would have been Jesus' brother as well. So you can see his brothers kind of became a thing in the church. Um, and, and, you know, from gone from non-believers to now, there's somebody special. So apparently these apostles, when they travel to different churches, they can bring a believing wife. They can bring their family with them. Apparently, since the brothers of the Lord are now somebody significant in the church, they do the same thing. And it even says, and Cephas. So Peter, when he travels, he brings his wife along. And, and, and when they do that, they're coming to, to serve at a church or to help out a church or preach at a church. And they bring their family and they're all supported by the church. So that's, that's the, the kind of the situation. And then Paul says, now, is it the case that only Barnabas and I, um, Barnabas and he are apostles also. And is it only the case that they're only the only ones that aren't allowed to do that? That when they travel anywhere, they're the only ones that have to work. So do you see where the rights come in? Do I ha not have the similar rights to the apostles to the brothers of the Lord and to Peter. Don't I have those same rights? Doesn't Barnabas have those same rights? Well, yes, I do. And that, that's his point is he's saying, this is what's most important is I have the same rights as they do, but, and that, that's where we're gonna go is, but does he exercise them? So first of all, this is his right. These are his rights. He, he can do these things. And where he's going to go in the rest of this epistle for a bit is he's, or this section anyway, he's going to be talking about some examples of these rights. Where do these rights come from? What are these rights? How do I know I have these rights? Well, listen to his, his next statement, verse seven. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Who tends a flock and doesn't get some of the milk? So his first thing is to go to everyday life examples. When somebody works, aren't they entitled to the fruits of their labor? So if a soldier joins the army, even if even a conscripted soldier, even a soldier who's pressed into service, do, do they go, well, now you got to pay for everything. I hope you have some weapons. No, whoever pressed him into service is going to provide him with food for the trip, for the, for the battle. They're going to provide him with weapons and armor. Why? Because they want them to do well. So the, 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 the soldier doesn't come in and go, hey, I'll pay for everything. When I joined the Air Force, I didn't pay for my, my uniform in basic training, nor did I pay for the wonderful haircut either, by the way. They provided those things for free. 
So they gave me the uniform. They said, put this on, wear this. So I didn't have to pay for those things. And, and that's in a volunteer uh, uh, army. In a, a conscripted one, it's the same thing. You, you don't have to pay for those things. That's provided for you. Then he says, who plants a vineyard without eating of it, any of its fruit? So uh, somebody comes and they plant a vineyard and they tend the vineyard and they water the vineyard and they, they guard the vineyard. Do they go, well, I don't want anything from it. I just like, you know, thought it should be there. No, what they're wanting to do is they're expecting a yield from that crop. They're expecting the, the grapes to come into to fruition and, and to make wine or to eat the grapes or eat, make raisins or something. They're expecting something from that. That was something that they put together, something that they did. And then the last one, a shepherd. Would a shepherd go out and tend sheep and get nothing for it? Well, that'd be really nice, but that isn't how it works. When you're out tending sheep in these days, you'd be out in the field for weeks and you don't have 7-Eleven up the street you can run to and get a bad burrito. You, you had to have food on the fly. And so they would take some of the food from the, the, the sheep. They would take milk and make uh, curds or, or cheese. If a sheep was uh, injured or died, they might eat the sheep. Uh, while they're out there, they expect to be making a living off of that. So that that's an example from everyday life. If you work, do you not expect to make something from that? That that's a standard thing. That's that's just what we should be expecting. Is we should be able to make uh, um, make a living off of the fruits of our labor. We should get something for it. So then he goes to something else. So there's everyday occurrences, and then he goes to verse eight well, eight through 10, and he goes, there's a scriptural command for this. There's a scriptural example for this. Do I say these things only on human authority? In other words, is it just because I noticed that, you know, this is what happens in everyday life? No, no, it goes, it goes a notch higher. Does not the law say the same thing? Doesn't the law of Moses teach the same thing, that a man should earn from his, his labors? He should gain from that. And I love the example he gives. I would get kicked out of seminary if I tried this, but Paul did it. So I'm on good grounds. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. There you go. Isn't that obvious? So the idea was uh, uh, you would take an ox and you would tie it to a, ground, uh, a, 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 a treadmill or a mill that would grind the grain. And when it was there, some people would put a muzzle on it. So if any grain fell out while you're filling the, the grindstone, uh, it would be able to eat it. It, wouldn't, it would just have to keep walking. And, and the law of Moses came along and said, no, if you tie an ox to a grindstone, you don't muzzle it. Any food that falls out when you're pouring grain into that to, to grind it into uh, flour, any of the grain that falls out, that oxen has a right to it. That was a very humane way of, of approaching things, that that ox should be able to benefit from its labors. So he says, this is what the law says. Is it for the oxen that God was concerned? Is that the entirety of this, this law is it only applied to oxen? And he's, he, what he says is, no, it didn't. It, was, it went far beyond the oxen. God doesn't really care so much about the oxen. He does, but not in the same way. He says, instead, does this not speak certainly for our sake? It is written for our sake. So when you look at the law of Moses, when, when we approach the law of Moses, I think this verse is extraordinarily in, um, informative on how we approach it. We don't come to the law and pick it up and bring it to ourselves wholesale, unchanged, unmodified. This applies to oxen. I don't have oxen, so I don't care. I, I'm not going to pick up the law and bring it into modern day society. For example, 
Remember the beginning of chapter 5. A man has his mother, his father's wife. Now, if we picked up the law and brought that wholesale into the church, what we would have to do is appeal to Leviticus 20. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. That is how, if we took the law unchanged, unmodified, and just brought it into the church, Paul's response would have been, he's sleeping with his mother or his stepmother. Kill him. Kill them both. But he didn't. What did he say? In verse 2, he said, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Put him out of the church. Don't kill him. So that tells you that the law still has a function. It still has a place. It is wrong for him to sleep with his stepmother. It is wrong to muzzle an ox means it's wrong to not let somebody earn a living off of their, their labors. That comes from the law, but it doesn't come straight from the law. In other words, when Paul looks at the law, he says it still applies. It's not passe. It hasn't just disappeared. But it hasn't come to us unmodified. The law comes to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. So we look to the law, and the law still has a place in the Christian's life. It isn't something that, why am I reading the Old Testament? I don't know if I told you this story before. I went to Westminster uh, Seminary in Escondido for a prospective student seminar before I went to seminary. And we were having lunch at this thing, you know, they, they had all the prospective students and we were sitting and eating. And I was talking with this one gentleman, and as I'm eating, he says, the, the Old Testament has nothing to say to the New Covenant believer in my four-covered midair. And I went, I don't think I would say that that way. And everybody at the table is looking at the guy, and I was like, you really need to come to school, because that's not how the New Testament handles it, is it? So the law comes to us, it comes to us modified through Jesus Christ. It comes to us through the saving grace of Jesus, not as a means of justification. Do this and you shall live, is what Israel was told. It comes to us as a way of uh, understanding morality, understanding sanctification. What does it mean to be more godlike? So when you look at, this is what's really challenging right now. Lisa and I were doing that five-day-a-week read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan. And so we're in Leviticus right now. Okay, it was hard to get through the boils. <laughs> that was really difficult. But I got through the boils. And, and so when you're reading through, through Leviticus, what you have to do is, is not say, um, what happens if I get a boil? You know, I, can I go to church if I got a boil? That, that's not the issue. The issue is something beyond that. There's a principle that underlies it. So in this case, did God have a concern for the ox? Well, yeah, kind of. But he was teaching you the principle that a person should benefit from their labors. That was the overarching principle. That still applies. That's still there. And so that's why he says it is written for our sake. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the, including the Law of Moses, including the book of Leviticus, including the boils, was written for our sake. Isn't that incredible? And, and it's going to come up again when we get to chapter 10. He's going to recount the Exodus and how the Israelites were going after idols and being really horrible. And he's going to say, this was written for our, our behalf. This was written for us. So, folks, I want you to know this entire Bible is yours. It is yours. God is speaking to you through all of it. But look at how our apostle handles the law and the rules. It's the principle of the rule, not the, the uh, letter of the law. So he says, this has been written for our hope because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
The ox teaches you that. This is what the ox is showing you, is that, the, that you should be anticipating making something from your labors. Um, that's good news. So here's, here's the, uh, the law principle. And so in verse 11, he goes on, he says, if we sow spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do, you, do, we, uh, do not we even more? So he looks to the ox, he says, there's a principle here. And then he says, it's spiritual. If I come to you and I sow spiritual things, should I not expect material blessings in return? Yes, I should. That is my right. It's a right that not only comes from what we see just in general society with, with soldiers and uh, farmers and, and, and vintners and, and shepherds. The law teaches this. And so it is a spiritual command too. And he says, if, if others share in that, if the apostles share in that, if the brothers of the Lord share in that, if uh, Peter shares in it, what about me? I planted you. I started this church. I brought the gospel to Corinth. Shouldn't I be entitled to that? So Paul is, is hoping that the Corinthians see, this is my right, is to come to you and for you to provide material support for me as I'm working for you, as I'm, as I'm laboring there. So, so the person who is working within a spiritual environment like that has a right to, to support. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out grain, and the labor deserves his wages. So, so why do you pay a pastor? Why would you pay a staff? is because these are folks who are working, laboring in the spiritual betterment for you. And so we have, we have a responsibility to support them. Dan Stromberg is an exemption. He, he will not take a, a salary, I've tried. He won't do it, but he is worthy of double honor. So if the honor is not a salary, he's worthy of double respect because he labors hard at preaching and teaching. That comes from the ox, from the lesson of not muzzling the ox. That just blows my mind. So we have so far this, this example in everyday life, we have a spiritual command. And now look where he goes, he goes to the temple. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So now here's another example. He starts to interrupt himself. He says, nevertheless, you know, we're not making, um, we're not taking advantage of this right. Well, wait a minute, I got another example. Look at the temple. So in the temple service, part of what happened, even in the pagan temples, I don't think that's what he's appealing to here. I, I think he's actually talking about the temple in Jerusalem. But in the temple in Jerusalem, you would bring your offering. You would bring your grain offering. You would bring your uh, sacrificial offering, a lamb or an ox or something, and, and you would bring it in. And what would happen is the thing would be slaughtered or a handful of the grain would be put on the fire, and then the priest got the rest. You got some of it to sit down and eat, and the priest would get it. That was how the priest, when they were engaged in temple service, made their living, is they ate that food. There's a bunch of examples I could cite. Just a real quick one, Leviticus 24, uh, verse 9. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons that they shall eat in the holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. It is due to the priest. So Paul interrupts his, his, his statement about, I am not exercising this right to say, even in the temple I can do this. Even in the temple this is how it worked. 
is they should be able to earn a living off of their, their work, their spiritual work, their, their, their labor in offering sacrifice. And then his last one is probably the most significant. He, he mentions Jesus' command, verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So where does the Lord command that? When did Jesus say, if you, if you share the gospel, you should get a living off of that? Well, I would argue the ox was Jesus speaking, that, that example from the law. This was Jesus saying that's, that's where you do it because that comes to us through Jesus. But also think about when he sent out the 72. He said, don't take anything with you. Don't take an extra pair of sandals. Don't take anything in your belt. Just go into the towns of, of Israel and preach the gospel. And he expected that when they did that, that the people would support them, that they would provide for them. Go into a house. If the house is, is, uh, is one of the, uh, the people who are friendly to the gospel, your blessing will reside there. Can you imagine if that was, that was our, our commission today is, I want you to take nothing with you. Don't even, not credit cards, nothing. And just go out into a neighborhood in Lancaster and start preaching the gospel. And don't come back until I tell you. You're only allowed to rely on the Lord for that. That is amazing, but that's what we're doing. when we, That's what Paul is saying. That's what I'm doing when I'm preaching the gospel. I'm going to these towns and villages, and I'm expecting that they're going to provide for me, but I don't demand it. I'm, I'm not requiring that. So if he's not requiring that, then here's the question. What's worth more than his rights? What is more important to him he, he has the right to do these things. He has the right to tell the Corinthians, you have to provide a home for me. You have to provide meals for me. You have to provide some money for me. And instead, he looks at the Corinthians and goes, I am never going to do that. I refuse to do that. I have the right to, but I'm not going to. What is more important? He's already hinted at it, but he's going to make it more explicit. But I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to, to secure such a provision. He says, look, I'm writing this letter. I don't expect you to respond to this letter with a check. That's not why I'm doing it. Instead, he says, here's what's more important. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounding for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. When he was converted, what did Jesus tell him? You, he told Ananias, he's going to find out how much he must suffer for my sake. He's going to go and preach the gospel to the nations. That's what he's going to do. So Paul says, look, if I do that, all I'm doing is what I've been told to do. That, that's nothing more than I've been commanded. So good for me, I'm doing what I've been told to do. That, that's not a grounds for boasting. That, and boasting sounds negative in our terms. I don't think it means boasting as in, look how wonderful I am. Um, I think it's his, his, his sense of purpose, his sense of pride. What is he, he most pleased with? He says, look, if I just go preach the gospel, that's, that's great. That's wonderful in and of itself, but that's not praiseworthy because I've been commanded to do that. What then must I boast in? For I do of this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will, I am still entrusted as a steward. What is then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my rights in the gospel. So Paul says, what is praiseworthy in what I'm doing? What I'm doing that's, that's more than just what I've been commanded is I refuse to take money from you Corinthians for my own benefit. He will take money from the Corinthians to send to the saints in Judea, but he will not take it for his own benefit. And he says, that's what I'm proud of. That's, that's the part of my ministry that I'm most proud of. I have the right to do this. 
I think he has belabored the point. He has really shown over and over again, he has absolutely the right to say, you have to provide for me. Other people do that, but Paul says, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because I would rather die than have somebody take away from me this thing that I'm most proud of, that I'm able to freely bring the gospel to you. So when you see the, the uh, funky-haired health, wealth, and prosperity preachers on TV saying, you just need to send me money and that's going to get you everything, remember Paul. Paul looks at those guys and he says, I would rather die than be one of them. There's no way I'm going to do that. He, he, he refuses to say, you're only going to get a blessing if you bless me. That is, that is just antithetical to New Testament uh, theology. That's just not where Paul is at. His choice is, I would rather look like Jesus Christ to you. I would rather bring the gospel to you and personally look like Jesus. And what he means by that is when, he, when Jesus came, he set aside the glory that he had. He emptied himself. That didn't mean he stopped being divine. What it meant is he emptied himself of all the prerogatives, all the privileges that he had. If, if the eternally begotten Son of God came to earth as who he really is, he would be due worship. He would be due honor. He would be the ruler of the whole world. But Jesus said, I emptied myself. I put that aside. I didn't exercise those rights. I came to serve. And so he became as a servant, as the lowest, lowliest of the lowest, in order to bring the gospel, not just to the rich and powerful, but all the way down to the ground where you and I live. And so what Paul is saying is he says, I want to be like that. That's what I want to look like. I want to come and not demand from you, but give to you because my Savior came to serve. And that's what I'm doing. So can I come and serve you, Corinthians? Now, this we've got to be careful here because that wasn't what he did everywhere. There were other places where he was taken care of. Think especially of when he was arrested in Jerusalem and he spent three years in Caesarea. He was under house arrest. His friends brought him food. His friends came and provided for him because in the Roman Empire, if you got thrown in jail, they didn't give you anything except for beatings and in a cell. If you wanted to eat, you had to have friends bringing you food or sorry, bud, you better beat somebody up and take it from them because we ain't providing it. So in Caesarea, he's in house arrest for three years and his friends are providing for him. And he was, he was fine with taking that. When he finally made it to Rome, he was in house arrest in Rome. And it says explicitly, they allowed his friends to, to visit and to provide for him. So Paul didn't always do this. It was, it was based on wisdom. What does this church need? What would be most effective for this church? Well, for the Corinthians, what was most important was that they see the humility of Christ exhibited in the man who brought them the gospel. I would rather die than have somebody take that away from me. That's, that's pretty, pretty strong language. So what Paul is saying here is he said, he's stressing the point that having a right is not the only criteria for deciding if you should exercise that right. right? So think of the, the weaker brother he brought up in chapter 8. The weaker brother is deeply wounded by somebody eating meat that they think is sacrificed to an idol. And so Paul, what his response is, is he's not saying, because the weaker brother is offended, therefore your right doesn't exist. What he says is, you have the right to eat this. An idol isn't anything. You're not worshiping by eating the meat that came from the, the marketplace. But if your brother is offended, set that right aside. Paul says to the Corinthians, I have the right to come and demand money from you, to demand a place to stay, to, to demand these things from you, but I'm going to set that aside. Why? Because I want you to see more of Jesus Christ. 
And so that's, that's the important thing. That's the thing that I think we should take away from this is, do you have rights? Man, in America, boy, do we have rights. And thank God for that. Do you always have to exercise every right every time? You really don't. We have a right to free speech. That doesn't mean you should always say what's on your mind because it's not always the best thing to say. It might not even be right. <laughs> but sometimes it just isn't loving to your brother or your sister or somebody who isn't your brother or sister, somebody who just is out there. So we have rights. Paul has just belabored that point. We have rights. The wise thing to do, the loving thing to do, the good thing to do is set them aside when it comes to considering other people. But he's also going to assert he does have rights as an apostle. And so he's going to be very careful how he exercises those things. The other question that I think this raises, and it came up recently, is where do rights come from? And I, I say that because when you look at how Paul enunciates, how, how he illustrates he has these rights, where they come from are unexpected places. You just see it in common life. Everybody just knows that if a shepherd is taking care of the sheep, he's entitled to milk. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that if somebody gets called into the service in the military, they're going to be provided for. You just, you know that's right. So even the pagans know that that's the right thing to do. And then he goes to the law, and the law announces that too. Then that law says you can't muzzle an ox, that people have a right to do that. And then he goes and he says, look at the temple, the worship. Even in your pagan temples, they do this. The priest makes a living off of that. And then ultimately, Jesus himself commanded it. So where do these rights come from? And the reason I bring this up is because recently there was a blow up on, um, on Twitter about this. Um, remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 8, I talked about the Declaration of Independence and how it said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that the, uh, every man is uh, endowed with uh, certain inalienable rights from their creator, chief among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I mentioned that it was... Uh, Ben Franklin had modified that, that originally it was they were sacred and undeniable. And Franklin said, no, they're self-evident. And why were they self-evident? Why would people think that? So that was the illustration I used. Now we're going to take the next phrase there, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Thomas Jefferson, the deist, wrote this. Not the Christian. He didn't believe in the Christian God. He didn't believe in the Trinity. But he did believe in a creator. And so however you interpret the idea of a creator, the creator has endowed you with certain rights that are unalienable. And what unalienable, it's a strange word. What it means is they cannot be removed from you. You can't give them up because your, your creator has given them to you. Where does that idea come from? <laughs> uh, this is the dust-up. This is where the dust-up comes in. Political reporter Heidi Prisbula, I think that's how you say her name, was on MSNBC one of those talking head shows that I never pay attention to and I wouldn't know existed except it showed up on Twitter. She was talking about Christian nationalists. And a couple of months ago, we did a, a taproom theology talk on what Christian nationalist is. So just real briefly, nationalism is the idea that the nation has a culture and it is the role and responsibility of the government to promote, establish, and defend that culture. So Germany for the Germans. And we're not going to let other people come in and make Germany less German because the, the government's going to protect that. So when you get to Christian nationalism, it gets murky because some people just think Christian nationalism is I'm a patriot. I love my country. I'm a patriot. <laughs> I love my country. I'm not a Christian nationalist, but I am a Christian. So what is Christian nationalism? In a technical sense, what that means is 
There are people who believe that America is a Christian nation founded by Christian on Christian principles for Christian reasons. And therefore, it is the role and responsibility of the federal government to protect that culture. And what they mean by Christians usually is white Protestants. And so that's their expectation is, is the government should be promoting and supporting and advocating for Christianity in this nation. You run into problems when you get to the amendment that says everybody has a right to uh, freedom of religion. Um, the government shall not establish or respect the establishment of religion, oops, or permit or prohibit the free exercise thereof. So it's, it's not true. It's not accurate representation of what America is. America is a great place for us to live as Christians. So the idea of Christian nationalism is they want to institute Christianity as the official culture and religion of America. Is it, even if it's not like listed that way, but then you get into the questions of which version of Christianity, which version of Protestant Christianity would we be forced to baptize babies? Would we be prohibited from baptizing babies? Which version of the Bible would we have to use the King James? It gets really messy, but I overdid that. That's that's more than I wanted to say. So Heidi is um, she's reporting lately on the threat of Christian nationalism. And she's talking about these Christian nationalists that largely hover around Trump. They kind of are in Trump orbit. And, and they're very, they're different. There's different versions of it. But she said, the thing that unites them as Christian nationalists is that they believe our rights don't come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They come from God. The problem with this is that they are determining what God is telling them. So her answer was, is if you believe that your rights come from God, you're a Christian nationalist. And that is where the internet blew up. And rightly so, because there are a lot of people who are fighting against Christian nationalists who would say, I'm a Christian and I believe that God gives us our rights. I think Paul has just established that. That right did not originate with anybody. It is built into creation that you have a right to earn money from your labors. Whatever that labor is, that, that is a fundamental human right, is that you should be rewarded. That's why slavery is so horrible. Because slaves are denied the ability to get the fruits of their own labors. All of their labor goes to their master. They're given just barely enough to survive. That's, and that's why we should react against it. It is contrary to the, the law of God revealed in nature, what the Roman Catholics call natural law. So when we talk about where do these rights come from, even Paul's right to say, if I preach the gospel, I have the right to demand from you that you support me. Even that comes from God. That is something that God has established and it's been in part of creation since the very beginning. So when we see God's law doing this, when we want to do those kind of things, what we have to do is remember that the law doesn't come to us straight out of the, the book of Leviticus and we just, you know, now attach a, a, a passage number or a law number to it. This is law so-and-so of the land, that it comes to us through Jesus Christ and it's modified there. But some of these things are bigger than just the church. And so we have these, these different things that the, the wages of the hired worker, Leviticus says, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. If you hire somebody, you have to pay them and you have to pay them that day is what the law says. That's that underlying principle. So now Paul is, has established his rights, and he's also established why he refuses to exercise them. He is free to do that. He is free to exercise his right or not. And, and that's what's so wonderful is it's not law. It's wisdom. When is it right? When is it best to do these things? When does it work? When shouldn't it work? 
And so that's the, the glorious thing what Paul is doing is he's holding himself up as an example. And he's saying, I'm willing to suspend the rights that I have as an apostle for your benefit. Because I want you to know more of Christ. I want you to be more like Jesus. I want you to see Christ in me. And I want you to, I want you to, to mirror that. I want you to enact that in your own lives. And so let me walk before you this way. And, and that's where he goes. Now, now, next week, we'll stop and we'll ask the question, what is an apostle? Because it's more complicated than you would think. I think, most of, I think often we think an apostle is one of the 12, right? Well, even when you get to that, who are the 12? I'm going to preach tomorrow. I'm going to preach next week's sermon if I keep talking. Let me just wrap this up then. We'll, we'll save that for next week. Remember, this is under the banner of meat sacrificed to idols. This is about your right. And what modulates this, what regulates this, what keeps this all in check is love. Do you have love for your brother or sister in Christ? Doesn't mean you don't have the right to do what you wanted to do, as long as it's you know a right that God's given. But will you exercise it with care? Will you exercise that right with honoring Jesus Christ, wanting to see more of the gospel in other people? Or will you just clumsily, ham-handedly rush out and do it because I'm free to? That's the attitude that Paul is warring against. And that's the attitude that we need to war against because it's, I think it's a um, uniquely American thing, you know? We all think we're John Wayne. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to charge out and do whatever I want, pilgrim. And, and we can't do that. We, we have to, as Christians, say there's more to it than that. We have to be more careful because we're enacting Christ, because we're enacting the gospel. We're showing what, it, what Jesus did, and can we mirror that? It's a high calling, you guys. This, this is not a simple thing we're asked to do, but it is important. So let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we do want, we seek, we desire to be more like you. That is what the scriptures promise. That's, that's what the promises that are held out to us is that, Holy Spirit, you will work in our hearts and our minds, in our desires and our loves and our hates, in, in everything in us to conform us to the image of the Son. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. So we know it's a sure thing. We will get there. And Lord, one way that we can do that is by mirroring Jesus' humility, that, that he humbled himself all the way down to the form of a servant and even to death on a cross, that he would do that. And so Lord, as we, as we seek to emulate our Savior, as we seek to follow our Master as his disciples, we seek to walk in his steps. Lord, would you give us a heart that cares for those we might step on as we exercise our rights? Would you give us a, a heart to say, I would rather die than offend my brother. I would rather die than to see my, bro my sister weakened by what I've, I'm enjoying the freedom of. And Lord, most importantly, I pray that through all of this, we would remember that we are free and we have these rights. And it doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what a, a weaker brother or sister says. We are free in Christ. Lord, give us the wisdom to exercise that freedom well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.